Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be back here with you guys. Uh, David, thanks for your introduction uh, earlier. It's good to be back at Christ the King. I've been here a few times uh, since you have moved into this new facility, but haven't preached here since that happened yet. And so it's been exciting for uh, for me hearing about this place for years and years now to, uh, to finally be here and be able to share the word of God with you. Uh, as David mentioned, Anna and the kids would love to be here with you too, but we spent two days trying to get back here. We were in... Uh, Florida last week on vacation, and uh, because of weather on Friday, our flight was canceled in the middle of the night, and then uh, yesterday a plane went off the runway in San Antonio, and so uh, we were stuck in the airport all day. So we got in last night, and I'm here today, but I was wondering, when do I need to pick up the phone and tell David or Gary they're preaching? So <laughs> y'all were spared, and, uh, and so we're glad to be here. Uh, we love you guys. We're thankful to have a second family here in El Paso. We're thankful for your prayers and your and your support. Before we even read the passage, I want to have uh, put an image in your mind that will hopefully stick there while we read the passage and through the next few minutes. And it's the image of one of those yellow wet floor signs. You know, whenever they've just mopped or there's been an overflow toilet or something, they put those little yellow tripod signs, wet floor, caution. And my question to you before we read the passage is this. What do you do when you see the yellow wet floor sign, instinctively, subconsciously, what do you immediately do? Yeah, you slow down and you, you become very aware of the floor. You're saying, where's the water? Is it a puddle? Is it, where do I need to step, put my foot? How do I need to distribute my weight so I'm not the guy or the girl who walks in? Gadoom. So you, we see those signs and, and just instinctively we start taking great care with something that we do every day with no problem, walking. And we're very careful where we put each foot, and we're very methodical in how we walk forward in that. My suggestion uh, to you this morning is that Psalm 73 is uh, the worship leader, the psalmist Asaph, putting a yellow wet floor sign on the Christian life and saying, this life we're living with our God happens on a slippery floor. It only happens on a slippery floor. It's the only kind of floor the Christian life happens on. And this is, this is the Bible's way of setting up that yellow sign. And I think because Asaph and God through Asaph desires the similar, a similar response to when you see the, the yellow sign. That we all of a sudden, knowing the floor is wet, knowing that it's slippery, knowing that we're prone to fall, start taking greater care with where we put our feet, with how we walk, with what pace we're going at and with where the floor gets slippery. Now, I'll mention this to you as well. Uh, you should know by now from Chuck's preaching and others that the Bible is never merely a moral lesson or a fable. Apply this to your life. Be careful how you walk. This is gospel. Every, every passage in the Bible points to and resolves in Jesus Christ, his finished work in his resurrection life, which he has already given to you. And so... We need to see this passage pointing its finger away from itself and saying, don't, don't look at me, look through me to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. There's two points, two simple things I, wanna, I want you to keep your eyes peeled for when I read this in just a minute. The first is this. When you lose perspective, you lose heart, you lose your footing, and you slip. So when you lose perspective, you lose a lot of other stuff too. When you lose perspective, you lose heart or motivation or drive, and you'll lose your footing and you'll slip. And the second is that worship restores our hearts 
and our footing by restoring our perspective. So if you've lost perspective or if you're losing perspective, your foot is slipping, you've lost heart, you're wanting to throw in the towel in one area of your life or another, worship or the gospel is how God restores our footing with that. And so this is the word of the Lord from Psalm 73, written by a worship leader of Israel named Asaph. Let me read this for you. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they, the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And that day, that was a good thing. They were well fed. They were rich. They're not in trouble as others are. They're they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. Arrogantly or loftily, they threaten oppression on others. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high saying, is there a God? What's he going to do? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I, Asaph, kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken. I've been rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus or I'll speak this way, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this or wrap my head around the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering, it seemed to me a wearisome task couldn't wrap my head around it until until I went into the sanctuary of God then then I discerned their end truly you set the wicked in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin oh how they're destroyed in a moment swept away by utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes O Lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms as mere vapor When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like an animal or a beast toward you. Nevertheless, even still, Lord, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, even still, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I will tell of all your good works. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, we long to be even this morning like those disciples on the road to Emmaus who said after you left them, oh, how our hearts burned within us while he was with us. Jesus, our hope this morning is not in my ideas or my thoughts or my eloquence or my words. It is in your word and your power. And so we pray that you would send the Spirit right now to preach. Send him to counsel. Send him to heal. Send him to correct. Send him to bind up. Let your word be in us what you promise it will be, power raw power, transforming power. Let it be the gospel in our ears, our mouths, our heart. We pray in your name, amen. Let me tell you a little story about my wife, Anna, and I, and this is wife approved. She's heard this before, and she knows I'm sharing this, so don't get angsty in your seat. Anna and I dated for two and a half years before we got married, and we knew each other before we started dating. We went to the University of Georgia. We got to know each other there, and By the time I called her and asked if we could start dating, she lived in Colorado, was working at a church there, and I lived in Pennsylvania. I was going to seminary at the time. And so the entirety of our two-and-a-half-year dating relationship happened from 1,800 miles apart. Like every now and then we would have a visit where I would fly to Colorado or she would come for a weekend in Philadelphia and we'd stay with friends. uh, But other than that, it was from 1,800 miles apart and... I don't think it requires much imagination on your part to realize that's hard. And long-distance dating, especially cross-continental dating, will test your motivation like you wouldn't believe. And in our harder and more honest moments, Anna and I would both tell you that we questioned in our heads, in our hearts, whether it was even really worth it anymore. And we started to wonder secretly and sometimes even talking to each other, we started to wonder, is this worth the effort that we're putting into this? And it was especially difficult in the middle of that two and a half year season of dating, right in the middle when gone to the honeymoon days where love is easy, where you want to be around each other all the time, where conversation is easy, just flows right out of your mouth. And too far away into the future were the days of kind of tangibly thinking about marriage and moving to that uh, next step. We were in the middle, couldn't see the honeymoon days, couldn't see the days ahead in marriage, and so we had begun to lose perspective, and here's what made it worse. Here's what made it harder, I should say. When I was in Philadelphia, and when Anna was in Colorado, we are surrounded by all of our friends who are, their boyfriends and their girlfriends are right there with them. Philadelphia is one of the most beautiful places to see autumn on the planet, I'm convinced. If you've never been there in October, you've got to go. Every tree in that area has, is gold and red and green and orange, and it's beautiful, and the wind, it's chilly, it's crisp, and they're just wrestling down from the trees. And I'm sitting there in the library, and I see my friend and his girlfriend walking off hand in hand to take a little break between classes, walking through the leaves. Anna is having friends back in Colorado share stories with her like, yeah, it's so great when I get off work early and it's a beautiful day, I just call up John or Jeff and we go take a run in the park. We go watch a movie together on Friday nights. And then there's me logging into Skype at midnight Eastern time with a horrible internet connection 
to talk to Anna, who just got done with work at 10 o'clock her time, for a sometimes great, sometimes painful 45 minutes of a pixelated conversation. In those moments where we were painfully aware of the difficulty of our situation and everyone else's situation was right in front of our faces, it seemed that they had it so easy and we had it so hard, right? And we began, there were times where we began to resent the difficulty of our situation. We began to even resent our relationship and wonder, like I said earlier, is this even worth it? Especially when we saw everybody else. And here's what happened. The dynamic I described before I read the passage is what happened. When you lose perspective, when you forget why you're doing what you're doing, when you're in the fog, you begin to lose heart, which means you lose motivation. You lose that drive, that push, that energy to keep going. And when you lose heart, you lose your footing. Your foot begins to slip and you begin to fall. And you either stable yourself or you fall and you go flat on the ground. Now, if you fall and you're on the ground lying on your back, doesn't everybody else look so much taller than you in that moment? Don't they look so strong in that moment compared to your situation on the ground looking up after you've fallen? Doesn't everybody seem to be looking down at you either with condescending advice or maybe you begin to resent them? Look how easy they have it. All of these people standing up, walking around, and I'm down here on my back on the floor. And maybe we begin to resent them or get bitter towards them, or maybe we begin to envy them. And we want to trade lives. We want to trade stories. We want to trade positions. Can you come down here on the floor and I'll take your life? Now, here's the thing. I get it. Most of you are not in dating relationships right now, and a lot of you didn't have the same experience that Anna and I did, which, by God's mercy, he held together. Uh, and has become a beautiful relationship and a marriage I have been thankful for every day of my life. But in those days, we lost perspective and we started to slip. And for you, it might not be dating, but it might be your marriage. You forget why you're doing what you're doing. Why am I overlooking a multitude of sins? Why are we still in this? Why are we still doing this? If you've been a parent for any length of time, it's definitely happened to you with your children, right? especially teenage kids or grown kids, and even more especially if they're not walking with the Lord. And you're losing perspective. You're losing heart. You're considering or maybe functionally have thrown in the towel and moved on or you want to. And you're losing heart and you're losing your footing. Maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's not parenting. Maybe it's your diet. Maybe it's your health. You're doing all the stuff you're supposed to be doing, but your health is putting you in the doctor's office every other week and all your friends who aren't doing what you're doing to stay healthy never go to the doctor. You're the one on the floor, on your back, looking up, and everybody has a life so much easier than you. You've lost perspective. You've lost heart. You're losing your footing. You're beginning to slip in your career, in your promotions, in whatever. None of us are strangers to this dynamic, losing perspective, losing heart, losing footing, and falling. But here's the thing. Psalm 73 isn't just reaching out and saying, hey, what's your situation that's like this one? Psalm 73 is Asaph in a brutally honest moment in the temple of God to the people of God saying, he's upping the ante, 
He's raising the stakes. And he's not just saying, have you experienced this in your marriage or your career? He's saying, don't you experience this in your relationship with God himself? Isn't this what life with God feels like sometimes? Doesn't the Christian life line up with this pattern sometimes? When you lose perspective and you start to wonder, why am I doing this anymore? What's the point? Why this church? Why community? Why confession? Why prayer? Why perseverance? And you lose heart and you lose your footing and you start to slip the way Asaph started to slip because the Christian life happens on a slippery floor. And so Asaph is sharing that experience with us and showing us what we can do with it. One thing that he's doing as well is God is authorizing you to start talking to him about this dynamic. We're talking about it with someone, usually ourselves in our minds, right? Why is this happening? Where's God? Like, I get it. I thought this was a trial, but it's been six months. I've learned the lesson. Why is the trial still here? Or it's been 10 years. We talk to ourselves about it, or we might grumble or talk to other people or ask for prayer about it. Psalm 73 is saying, is God saying to you, let's start talking about this, you and me together. Let's bring the conversation to the two of us, and let's talk about it in community. If you've never experienced something like this, maybe you're young enough to where you've not felt your foot slip yet. Psalm 73 is not... It's not a cynical view of life saying, oh, well, you better buckle up. It's going to get hard. It's a, it's a friend coming to you and saying, I want to prepare you for the day you will feel your foot slip because your foot's going to slip. Because there's going to come a day, the busyness of life or your own hard heart or some circumstance or suffering is going to fog you in. And when you lose perspective, you lose heart. When you lose heart, you lose your footing. When you lose your footing, you slip and fall. So this is either an outstretched arm to encourage you this morning or this is preparation for what lies ahead so that you can see God in that midst and know what he's up to. Really quickly, how does this happen? How is it that we lose perspective, lose heart, lose our footing? What's the anatomy of that? What's the mechanics if we break it down so that we can recognize it and say, oh, this is happening with me or this is how I got to the place I'm in? I think it happens when there becomes a, an increasingly growing gap between how I thought my life should pan out and how it actually is panning out. It happens when there's a growing gap between what you think God should be doing in the world, in your life, in your family, with your children, with your wife, your husband, and what it seems like he's actually doing or not doing. The bigger that gap gets, the more intense this experience is, right? The gap between what you, how you thought, how you imagined your life would be right now and how it actually is. The bigger the gap, the more intense the feeling, the quicker we are to lose perspective, lose heart, and start asking questions like Asaph was asking of why do the wicked prosper? Am I doing all of this in vain? Is this pointless? I imagine 99% of you have already found a place right now in the past or coming up for you in life that you resonate with this passage with. Your career, 
Has it hit a wall? Because you won't sacrifice your family or your marriage at the altar of promotions? Has your righteousness in the workplace not been seemingly rewarded with being noticed by others or appreciated by others or promoted? Are you at a place where you've wondered if your parenting was supposed to produce different results than it has with your grown children? And you're wondering, what happened? Where is God in the midst of this? What does covenant theology even mean now? How do I connect those dots? It's easy when I baptize my child. But 30 years later, it's a lot harder. What does it mean that God is faithful to them? Is it that you fight against sexual temptation or same-sex attraction or whatever variety of sexual attraction or temptation it is? You have chosen to push back against it, but everybody around you has not. They're embracing it, and their life seems so easy. Like Asaph says, always at ease, sleek, fat, well-nourished. And you are wondering, could this possibly be the way of life? The cr- the, a life of crucifixion? A life of, of saying no? A life of repenting and clinging with Jesus to white knuckles? Does, is this what life feels like? That's what life looks like. Got it easy. I'm the one feeling like I'm rebuked every morning. I'm the one feeling like I'm stricken. They feel like they have no pangs, no pain until death. The list goes on and on, right? Singleness goes on and on. Emotional life, mental struggles, whatever it is, spiritual life. Our lives are full of places just like Asaph. And eventually, if it's super intense, we get to a place where we begin to ask the mega question, maybe not theologically, because some of us will never ask the question, will I walk away? Will I leave the faith? Will I leave Jesus? Perhaps some of us don't have maybe the courage to entertain that question. Perhaps some of us can't fathom. Like Peter said, where else would we go? He's all I have. But sometimes, even at an emotional level, we begin to ask the question, if we're honest, is this even worth it anymore? Is this life with him even worth it to keep fighting, to keep repenting, to keep confessing, to keep praying, to keep bearing with one another in love, to keep overlooking sin, to keep confronting in love? Is it even worth it? This is a question for church people. Not just in an innocent, benign way either. This is a question that is loaded. It's a serious question. Because what you do with that question has great implications. How you answer the question, is it worth it? How Asaph answered the question that he was asking seemingly to himself and then asking to the congregation of Israel, is it even worth it? Is it all in vain? Has great implications. Anna and I are no different than a lot of you who have been Christian for any number of years, especially uh, those of you who have been believers for a longer time. Anna and I, uh, the man who uh, was the worship leader at our PCA church in Athens and had been for about 10 years and was the sought-after man in the church for wisdom, for counsel, the man who had five children and it seemed like the life everybody wanted, the man who led worship at our wedding, six days after our wedding, went to his wife and said, I've never loved you, and I've wanted out of this marriage for years, and now I'm going to do it. And he left his wife and his five children. We, I've seen students leave the faith and leave the church because it's just not full of cool enough people. 
I felt my motivation slip in different seasons of life, wondering, is this life with God worth it? Is this the way it's supposed to be, or am I missing something? I have experienced times, and you have too, when you've lost heart and your foot is slipped, just like Asaph, which I should, we should note is a big deal that Asaph is the guy writing this psalm. If you read many of the other psalms around this or from the rest of Scripture know much about this guy named Asaph, you know that Asaph was the worship leader, one of the, one of the leaders of corporate worship at the temple. Not the local church, not the local synagogue, the temple, which was the building God lived in and met with his people, right? If you want to meet with God, you want to meet with Yahweh, go to the temple. That's where he is. Asaph led worship at that place. And on his drive into work that Sabbath day, Asaph, in a sense, is letting you in on what's going through his thoughts as he passes all of the seemingly, all of the people with seemingly easy lives that he crosses on the way into work that morning to lead worship. And the worship leader is saying, what is going on? When my life looks like this and their lives look like that, why is there a gap between what I thought God's faithfulness to me looked like and what it actually feels like in the trenches of everyday life? It was the worship leader's heart. Uh, it was the worship leader who was losing heart, the worship leader who, is lo- who had lost perspective, the worship leader who said, my foot almost slipped. I almost fell. And now he's sharing that with us. And he's torn. Verse 1, I don't think is him giving a superficial Sunday school answer of truly God is good to those who do good. Truly God is good to the righteous or truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. I don't think that's just a throwaway hallmark line, like a cynical, oh, I get it, God's good to his people. But listen to this. I think it's actually a deeply profound, it's like when someone with cancer says, trust the Lord, he will be with you. Coming from someone who's endured years of cancer and says that to you will make the hair on the back of your head stand up. When an 11-year-old says it to you, it's different, right? You're like, well, how much have you suffered? What you said is true, but it's not profound. Asaph is saying something that is true and profound because he's on the other side of this slipping, this hardening, this falling. He says, truly, take this to the bank. God is good good to his people to those who are pure in heart but then he is still honest about how big the gap between that statement that truth that God is good to his people bam and what that goodness to his people feels like sometimes because that's what the rest of the psalm is about until the end what did he feel like what had his life become what was this the other pole on that growing gap He says in verse verse 5, my life is plagued with problems. He says, I'm stricken with problems. Asaph's life seemed to be going down while everybody else's life seemed to be going up. When he did the compare and contrast with his neighbors, with all the people he saw on the drive into work, it didn't add up. He says in verse 21, he's looking back at the experience in hindsight, when my soul was embittered, when when I was a cynic, when I was cynical, when church brought a, a, a big old eye roll to me, ugh. Verse 22, 
Verse 22, I was torn up inside. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like an animal before you, God. I was like an animal before you. Things got so bad that in verse 3, he said, I even envied the arrogant. I secretly wanted to trade lives with the wicked, with those who are not connected to you, God, with those who do not love you. I even got to a place where I wanted that life more than the life I had with you. What in particular, though, drew Asaph's attention to their life? Because this is what draws our attention. When we're on our back, when we have slipped and fallen, and we're losing perspective, and we are either hating the people standing up, or envying them and wanting their life, or resenting them in bitterness, or feeling condescended to, what in particular about their life are we so attracted to that makes us want to throw in the towel and functionally live like the wicked? Verses 3 through 11 is where Asaph throws this out. I saw them, pro- listen to what, what's the lowest common denominator in everything I'm about to say, everything in Asaph is about to say, listen. I saw them prosper. It seemed that they had such painless lives, no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't have troubles like the rest of mankind. They have everything they want, it seems. They enjoy a life of ease and their riches multiply. What had Asaph's heart gotten attached to? A life of comfort, right? A life of ease, a life without speed bumps. Like Asaph's kind of saying the Christian life is like, have you ever driven through one of those neighborhoods with speed bumps or speed humps every 20 feet? You're like, or potholes or construction. He's saying that's more like what the Christian life is like. And Asaph's saying, man, that interstate looks mighty good to me. Just coasting, driving. He wants the life of prosperity, the life of ease, the life of comfort, even if it meant, almost even if it meant, God's not with him on that path. The interstate was more appealing to him than the road that he was on, even though God was with him on the road he was on. And walking away from God would mean he was not with him there. And we envy that stuff too. Those are the kind of marriages we envy. Right? It's the kind of husband that we want, the kind of wife that we want, the kind of kids that we want, the kind of small group that we want, the kind of church we want, the kind of preacher we want. The kind of health we want, the kind of career we want, the kind of boss we want, the kind of promotions we want, right? Our hearts are in love with the life of ease, a life without speed bumps. And it was no different for the man who stood up and read the liturgy at the temple of God for the people of God in the house of God. Week after week, Asaph. And it goes all the way to the point that he thinks, did I keep my heart clean for nothing? Was it all in vain? Is this temple work I'm doing just vainly going through the motions? You ever come to church wondering if you're just going through the motions? And Asaph says, I tried to figure this out. I tried to wrap my head around it. He got to an introspective place, right? Which is a big deal. Like he moved past the place of just feeling bad, whatever, wondering where God is. And he actually got to a place of sobriety to be able to start thinking about it. Why is this happening? But that didn't work. Thinking, 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 analyze, analyze, analyze. And he says, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't get answers. I asked God, why? God, where are you? God, why is this happening? 
And he said it was a wearisome task. He said, go down that route and you will be weary. He says, you, it, he doesn't say don't ask those questions. Those are absolutely endorsed by God that you get to ask him. The rest of the Psalms are the proof. But he says, you will be weary if that, if understanding why and getting answers to why your health is bad, why you haven't gotten promoted, why your kids are the kids who mock the faith. If you want answers for why, that will weary you. That is not where refuge comes from. Verse 17, where does refuge come from in the last point? What restores perspective? It's the reverse domino effect, right? So I said earlier, when you lose perspective, you lose heart. When you lose heart, you lose your footing. When you lose your footing, you fall. Asaph says in verse 17, when did everything turn around? What was the first glimmer of hope? I don't know if this was years of his life, months of his life, weeks of his life. We don't know how long he was in this place. But one day, he went back to the place he'd gone to every other day. And that day was different because that day he saw God. The same God that he had been talking about and reading about and hearing from and or seeing the priest sacrifice to all along. And I'm not saying God was not meeting with him in those times, but there was a day where God opened his eyes and he said, until I went into your sanctuary, O God, I finally understood the lights came on. Perspective came back, right? And when perspective comes back, your heart comes back. And when your heart comes back, your footing comes back. And when your footing comes back, you stand. Even on a slippery floor. So all of these things that he's talking about in this psalm began to turn around when he entered, when he entered, when he entered the sanctuary. And then and only then was his perspective restored. So my question is, why that? Why not something else? Why not when I had a conversation with my friend? Because that could have happened. Why not when I was working in the field that day and thought about some passage about God's covenantal faithfulness? Why not when my wife rebuked me and said, hey, get your head out of the sand. What are you thinking? Why did he say, until I entered your sanctuary, then I saw the destiny of the wicked and by implication the destiny of the righteous. Why this? Why the gathering of the saints? Why the preaching of the word? Why being nourished and fed by our God? Why the reminder of the gospel? Why is it that? You could probably answer the question, right? It's because this is the place, this is the time, this is the moment where God aims all of his firepower at rejuvenating and reviving and revitalizing his people. Because when you gather together with the redeemed people of God, or if you're not redeemed by God, if you're not a believer and you're figuring out where you are with God right now or where you are with Christianity and you're here, even when you gather together with his people, this is that snap back to reality. Not just the preaching of the word, singing and worshiping. And you remember, oh wow, all of creation, all of heaven, the rocks are worshiping God. Maybe I should too. Because he didn't die for that rock, but he died for me. This is a reorientation to reality. Your God is a God who knows you're hungry and he feeds you. Your God is a God who knows you fall and slip and land on your back and he meets you on the floor 
and lifts you up at, under his power, under his strength. Mingling in the hallways, having someone ask, how did that test come back? How are you doing? I know the deployment's coming up. How are the kids? How can I pray for you? That is a reorientation to reality. You are a member of a body that loves you and cares for you and supports you. All of this is a reorientation to what is real, what is true. This is the most realistic, sober, sane hour and a half of our week. It's not just that worship only happens here. It happens everywhere. But Asaph is speaking specifically to corporate worship with the saints of God. This is the place where God brings us back to our senses week after week. And oh, how happy he is to accommodate to us needing this week after week. He doesn't roll his eyes. Ugh, another Sunday they forgot. I guess we'll go do this again. Do you know how delighted he is to meet you on the floor week after week? Say, I'm not up here mocking you from the heights. I'm not up here condescending to you. I am stooping down, the true meaning of the word condescending, with dissension, stooping down to you on the floor, meeting you where you are, but never leaving you stuck there. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. Corporate worship is where in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God are reminded that the gospel is what the truth is. The gospel is reality. Good news is the news of your life. It is where we come back to our senses. So this psalm I told you earlier, it's, it's, it's Asaph putting a wet floor sign on top of the Christian life. But again, it's not just the moral lesson. Because this is the psalm where it shows you what your God will do when you have already lost perspective, when your heart is beginning to grow cold, and you are starting to slip. Even if you have fallen and are landing on your back, envying the wicked, this psalm says, well, what, what's God going to do in that moment? I bet you wonder that, right? I bet your conscience has already given you an answer. Well, God is standing up here saying, well, you know, when you actually want to get serious again, I'm over here. I'll wait on you, but get up. Or he is yelling at you from above, get up. Or he's not even there. He's moved on with his people. He's not the shepherd who goes for the one who ran. He's the shepherd who sticks by the 99. This is a psalm. It's, a, it's putting a picture in your imagination. When you fall, when you slip on a slippery life, what does your father do? Where is he? Asaph says, I saw him on the floor. This transcendent God that I called the people of God to worship week after week, this transcendent, imminent, eternal, all-powerful God, I found him on the floor, on his knees, with his face up to mine, imminent, near, present. That's why Asaph says at the end, it is good that I am near to God. How did he get near to God? Is Asaph saying, hey, I found my way out of this. Here's three easy steps for you to do it too. Come to this seminar on Saturday. I'll teach you how. No. How did he get back near to God? It's the God who always draws near to his people who continually slip and fall. And so friends, hear this. Worship is a weekly surprise that it's better than you thought it was. God has not left you. He is not unaware 
that your child is still walking away from him. He is not indifferent to your pain and your prayers and your groaning. He is not indifferent to your fight against sin. He is cheering you on. He is with you when you're losing perspective, giving you your perspective back so that your heart doesn't harden, so that you don't slip. He is with you in the hardness of heart, sometimes correcting, sometimes rebuking, sometimes introducing pain to get your attention. He is with you when your foot is slipping to stabilize you, to offer an arm to catch you. He is with you when you fall in on your back. At every stage, he is with his people. He is for his people. And Asaph is saying, this is what the normal life with God is like, what it feels like. When Anna and I were in the midst of those two and a half years of dating together, we would, as I told you, honestly admit to asking the question, do I really want to be doing this? And there were moments that we would ask the question, is it worth it? We lost perspective. We lost heart sometimes. We almost lost our footing until. There was an until in our relationship too. Just like Asaph in verse 17 had an until. What a beautiful summation of the gospel. Until. Until I went to Colorado to visit for the weekend or to work out there for the summer. Until Anna came to Philadelphia to visit me. You know what happened? Like, there were times when she would be rehearsing her breakup speech before I landed and came up to visit her for a weekend, or I would be doing that before she came, and then we see each other until I saw her, until I spent time with her, until I remembered, until I had perspective again. Then I knew why I was doing this, because of who she is and what she's like and what God had done in her life, and vice versa with me, until we were near again, until we were in the presence of each other again, until the surprise came. This is why we're doing it. This is why this is worth it. Then our footing came back. Then we stood, even though she got back on a plane and left, even though I got back on a plane and left. It was until I was able to say on an altar one day, you are mine now. And she said to me, and I am yours, and you are mine. And in a sense, you are my portion forever, and I am her portion forever. Don't you know that God knows, your maker knows, until you see him again, until you meet with him again, in his presence, by his grace, the backdrop of his gospel through Jesus. Don't you know, he says, or we say to him, I am yours and you are mine, just like Asaph says. Don't you know we say to him, our hearts leap out and say to him, and you are my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. See how personal the Christian life becomes? It's not ideas. It's not abstract. It's not theologizing. It is God. It is me. It is his people gathered together, washed with his blood. We know what Asaph only knew in a shadowy form, the lengths God would go to be near his people again. Don't you know that's what the cross is all about? Don't you know that's what the resurrection is all about? God being united to his people forever, with you, near you, for you, forever. Even when your heart is hard, even when you've lost perspective, even when you're wondering why you're doing this anymore, 
even when you have slipped and fallen. Find him on the floor with you today, tomorrow, next week, bringing you to your feet. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need to see even through the cross, through the resurrection, through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, we need to see with the eye of faith a condescending God, a God who leaves heaven to take on a servant form to serve us, to help us, to meet us. And it is here in your presence, the preaching of your word, the singing of worship to you, seeing you feed us, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ himself. It is here where we are brought back to our senses. So even now, Lord, help us to understand. Help us to see, we pray. Help us to know you this morning in a new way. We ask this in your name. Amen.